Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is Chris Steyerwalt, who's one of our most recent additions to AEI. He joined us this April as a resident fellow focusing on American politics, voting trends, public opinion, and the media. He's also a contributing editor and weekly columnist for The Dispatch and has a podcast, The Hangover. Before joining AEI, he was the political editor of Fox News, and he's the author of the 2018 book, Every Man a King, A Short, Colorful History of American Populists. Thanks for joining the podcast, Chris. It's my pleasure to be here. Right so. I'm very glad to have you here, Chris, because you are a great combination of political expertise and knowledge about how politics works in America. And you're also an experienced journalist, not only in writing journalists, but also TV journalists. I was going to call you the TV man at AI, but I didn't think you'd like that. <laughs> that well, TV is important. Video is important. TV is dying. Cable news probably has five or 10 years of functional life in the business model. I think we are figuring out better ways to do the news. I think we're figuring out better ways. And I always point out to people that in the mid-1930s, radio was killing America, right? The new innovation of radio had been taken over by cranks, kooks, charlatans, weirdos, communists, anti-Semites, Huey Long, Father Father Coughlin, the whole swell gang of guys, and it wasn't working. And it took us time to figure this stuff out. I think we're figuring it out. We've only had iPhones since since 2008. So I think we're figuring it out. I think TV, the idea of passive reception of television images for news was never a great fit. And I think it's I think it's pretty much dead. Well, I went out to dinner with a group the other day and they told me that Facebook and Google are the big players Mm -hmm. in the way people get information. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And and how how does that work? And what does that do to a journalist? Well, the competitive pressure. So there's the one thing, there's a business side piece, which relates to there's legislation that's on offer. There's legislation that's on offer that has bipartisan support that would basically remove antitrust restraints placed on newspapers so that they could essentially collectively bargain with social media companies, Google and Facebook most notably, to say, we are going to have more bargaining power against you. Because they're ripping them off. They're well, taking their content and putting it on Facebook and, but and the, not paying for it. it well, Is that not, the way they look at it? Well, that's the way they look. Certainly, it's the way they look at it. And certainly, it's the way that, if you think about it this way, it was only 30 years ago that we nationalized the media, right? That we really, through cable news as the main platform there, nationalized the political discussion and overthrew the tip O'Neillism that all politics are local. The great sorting was- of the, the end of San Diego yeah. television? Yes. <laughs> what's that guy? That, what's the... Ron Burgundy. Ron, yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. <laughs> but the, the great sorting that made things more nationalized that took place in the 90s that had big demographic overlays too. But media drove a lot of that. That what the world that Rupert Murdoch and others made 30 years ago is moving into its twilight. And the, yes, they feel like they're getting ripped off by social media companies that are aggregating. And that's why you see all of the pressure on Republicans in Congress to crack down on these firms that previously they would have, you know, Marco Rubio held his one of his first events for 2016 at Uber. And is now the one of the avatars of, they call it, it's not compassionate conservative, but common good capitalism yeah. and stuff like that. So it's changed the politics and it's changed all those things. I think in the end. So let me just get this straight. Rupert okay. Murdoch and Fox and, and journalism is a victim of, of Mark Zuckerberg and bigger players. 
They are, as usual, just as newspapers were a victim of their own success, right? We remember, well, you don't remember, BB, but <laughs> once upon a time, as the earth was cooling, the newspaper industry was enormously wealthy and enormously powerful. The powers that be. The powers that be. They had 30%. David Halberstam book. Yep. They had 30% profit margins. Everybody had to be a subscriber to the newspaper. It was hugely important. And those people looked at the threat that was posed by cable news, national media, but very much so the internet and said, oh, pish, posh, these guys aren't going to do it. That was the year I started as a reporter. Post-college, I started as a reporter when I was 17. But my first post-college real job was 1997. And it was, the internet was there and it looked ridiculous, right? Maybe we'll put some web ads up or maybe we'll let you do a blog post, but who cares? And it, it was only five years before it was all over, right? That the newspaper industry, which was over leveraged and a mess, got wiped out. And the circle of life will fulfill itself again. And it is true that big tech companies, most importantly, Facebook and Google, didn't understand the consequences of what they were doing. And the consequences are, if news is free, if people will not pay for news, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get crappy news. The business model is not a good one, and you're going to get clickbait. And if you want quality content, people have to pay money for it. And there's just not a, there's not a way around that. And do you think, now let's just convert it to politics for just a second, because this sort of low-quality news, low-quality information, ubiquitous all over the place, do you think the electorate is less informed and less thoughtful than it used to be? Well, I always want to be careful because... 70% of Americans are fundamentally fine, right? 70% of the American electorate is basically okay. They are in the range of normal. And this is why we see- They are great Americans. They are great Americans. Are That's right. That when you look at questions like, that are supposedly impossible to solve questions, but you look at immigration, you look at health insurance, you look at even abortion, there's big consensus out there on these questions, right? Americans don't want no abortion, but they don't want late-term abortion. Americans do want more enforcement on the border. And again, these are 60 and 70% yeah, of Americans right. come together. But it is in the interests of a small number of people. You've heard the old joke about what you do with your base electorate, your political base. You treat them like mushrooms. No, I've never them in the dark <laughs> okay. and you cover them with horse manure. <laughs> and so it is easy now right, to find a self-selected group of politically addicted individuals who are noisy in social media spaces, who drive, think about it this way. So if MSNBC or Fox or somebody. So what you're saying is the great consensus of America is still there and still thoughtful and still wise, but they're not powerful. They're being outflanked by the extremes. Our primary election system is a 45-year experiment that has failed us enormously. Of all of the toxins that we've introduced into, and like all things, when it was brought in in wide use, so in 1968, Hubert Humphrey won zero primaries. Primaries were not necessary or important, right? Well, they, Robert Kennedy thought a couple. Well, and, that, and so 68 was the year that started to change, change the whole discussion about primaries. 68 was the end of the old. And I don't think Nixon won a primary. Uh, that's a good I, one. I just, I just was reading about the Republican side. He just sort of wrapped it up and it was over. Well, I mean, no offense to Mr. Republican Bob Taft. He wasn't exactly 
he couldn't plug into the same thing that the Goldwaterites wanted, right? He was, it wasn't that, it didn't have the same crackle. Plus, because, and I think Goldwater gets unfairly beaten up over for this, nobody was going to beat the vice president running, wearing the bloody shirt of his martyred predecessor, right? JFK was assassinated less than a year before the 1964 election. The idea that any Republican was going to come along, and this is where you hear the famous story about when Gallup went out to- Well, I was actually, well, you got off track there. Right. I was talking about the 68 the Republican, 68. I meant, sometimes I How do we distracted. go back to 64? Sometimes I get to, as I'm doing my- I was actually about as I was, Nixon. As I was Nixon recording- wrapped up. As I was recording the Hangover podcast, which was a Republican Party autopsy that the gang at the dispatch was nice enough to let me do, including with our friend, Matt Continetti. And Matt was the worst oh, because yeah, yeah, you put- two political history nerds like us, and we start talking, we're like, well, first, let's go back to, and first, let's go back to, we were supposed to be talking yeah, yeah, about yeah, the yeah. 2016 we election, the and all of a sudden, <laughs> so we're talking about track. Let's get yes. the... <laughs> I'm the worst. So, we talked about the media, and you're saying extremes are having an oversized effect on the way things... Primary electorates. So, let's take an issue like critical race theory. Okay. Okay. So, critical race theory is not a thing that most Americans pay attention to or care about. But it is highly potent for motivating base voters and addicted news consumers. I actually have to disagree with you on that. I think that critical race theory is a kind of a stalking horse for making determinations about outcome based on race. I'm not talking about the merits of it. So I think, I think people in America are concerned about an excessive... Yes. Wokeism uh, has plenty has of startled a lot of people has plenty of mainstream detractors. Yes. What I mean is specifically the question of critical race theory being taught in schools yeah, okay. is something that, well, you're very right that in that. Gov- so we can think about the three thirds of the electorate, the people who always vote Republican, the people who always vote Democrat. And then the spectrum in yes, between are people right. who usually vote Democrat, but sometimes will vote for Republican. You can think of like Biden voters in Georgia who split their votes for yeah. the Senate ranging over to people who usually vote Republican and sometimes will vote for a Democrat. So those voters may be concerned about, in general, wokeism and what's happening with the persecution and canceling and all those things. That's that's real. What I'm saying is finding that little nub. And if it wasn't critical race theory, it could be. How about the For the People Act? So you take the For the People Act, which is I wrote a piece about this, the data for progress. So data for progress put out a poll. They said. Well, golly gee, 69% of Americans support the For the People Act. And I thought, that seems impossible. I bet 10% of Americans don't know. I bet not one in five Americans know what that is. So you go and look at the question. Yeah, you go and look at the question. And it's like, if I told you about a bill that would make sunshine, rainbows, and puppies, and cotton candy clouds, would you like that? Some people oppose it because they're mean. So, yes. So these are issues that help fundraising, that these are base service, belly scratching yes. issues. And both parties, because of the primary system pressures and because of the small dollar donations online, they spend inordinate amounts of time talking about these issues as opposed to, and this is the perverse incentive of a, duop- of a duopoly, it's not in the perceived interest of individuals in either party to solve problems when what you have to do is keep dealing with your base over and over and over again. Well, just speaking about that consensus, that broad consensus, let's just leave the primary problem out for a minute. Do you think, and you and I have discussed this, but I want you to give it to us, our listeners. Do you think that if you take 
President Trump's difficulties post-election and his personality out. And you just take a little bit of Trumpism on the policy front, trade in China, immigration, maybe a, a greater affection for entitlements than traditional Republicans have had, and maybe a, a more restrained world use of American forces around the world, and combine it with traditional sort of Reagan Republicanism on taxes and regulation and on wokeism. Do you think that would be a pretty powerful governing consensus to put before the American people, or, or is that wrong? Well, here's the thing. You are animated by ideas. You're an ideas person who cares about policy and cares about that stuff. And you look at voters and say, this is what you want. This is good, right? <laughs> and the thing about the dogs is sometimes they don't like the dog food. And if they don't, they don't. We can think of a lot of candidates over time who seem to have the right, and I think very much of Ted Cruz in 2016. He had mm. focus grouped, shopped, shaved down to an Elizabeth Warren in 2020. Well, this is Th a good point. This yeah. is what you want, right? This is- this I figured it out. I figured out what you people want, <laughs> and I'm going to give Trust it to you. Trust the people, and I'll give you what you want. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, and I'm going to give you lots of it. And then the people go, I don't like it. And <laughs> the thing about American politics is that governing third of Americans who are persuadable, they will vote for very liberal people. They will vote for very conservative people, but they're always voting for people. They're always voting for a person. And it wasn't that Donald Trump's ideas beat Hillary Clinton. It was that Americans disliked and distrusted Hillary Clinton even more than they disliked and distrusted him. I know so that that's very good point. So I know this. Sound, I know this sounds painfully character. obvious. You can't teach personality. You can't no. coach it. So, no. you, but do you know it when you see it? Yeah, and so do you, because you go, and then we reverse engineer out why we think so there's right. been a lot of work that's been done <laughs> yeah. by policy people who want to harness Trump's success with lower propensity white working class voters. But I want to, I'm here to tell you, whatever brill cream Josh Hawley's using uh, <laughs> is not going to be good enough to have the same Trump voters go, ah, you Ivy League educated smarty pants, you are now my You champion. are the next thing. Yeah. yeah. And I would just to say, Places like Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, it's my favorite one to look at for this. This is Wilkes-Barre. If you look at Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, you see 20 and 24 point swings. Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden didn't bring it as far back, but you see these big swings. These are not ideological voters. No, no, they're not. These are not people who are like, uh, I side with Bush because of his position on Social Security. They were like, I don't like John Kerry. Yeah. And John Kerry is not sometimes that likable, yeah, frankly. Yes. He, <laughs> It is a daily struggle, a <laughs> yes, daily struggle. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to the media for just a second because we do, you do have a history and you, Sounds rather you, know, scandalous. you were part of the, <laughs> the fair and balanced Roger Ailes, yeah. Fox News. Tell our listeners your view of what happened there. Not him personally, but the transformation well, of Fox News. I think 80% of it are the market pressures we were talking about earlier. Right. So if the people say, I can flip the channel or I can just go on my Facebook feed and what makes the news the news is that sometimes we tell you what you don't want to hear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. The whole point. Is, now, I have a worldview. I am a person. Calvin Coolidge is my favorite president of the 20th century. And while we're talking, I'm wearing a seersucker jacket. <laughs> I don't think anybody's like, this guy is a justice Democrat. No, I, I, I am a person who came to the world and have my experiences that I bring with me here, comma. But my job is always to try to get myself out of the way to provide a reader, listener, viewer, the best, most dispassionate analysis I can provide. 
And it's useful if you want to know what's going to happen. But it's not useful if you don't care about what's going to happen, but you just want to have your, if you want to be cosseted and what inside the dying space of cable news, right? Keeping viewers two minutes longer, right? Makes a huge difference. And when Rupert Murdoch explained to the Washington Post why he fired me, he said basically that I didn't get as good a ratings as Dan Bongino. (laughs) And I thought, and to no offense to Dan Bongino, it's kind of a different thing, right? Your political analyst, the guy who comes on and is like, well, this is how this county is going and this is what we expect to see over here. And these are those things. I'm not offering that. And what Fox used to do well was, and this was something Roger Ailes, it is unfortunate for America that Roger Ailes was so monstrous personally because we lost a real talent in him. The idea of saying you have to keep bright line divisions between news and opinion and you have to do enough real news. If you turn on any cable network today, not just Fox, any cable network today, you will see narrative all day, right? All day, there's a story that they're pushing and they're grinding on the narrative all day. And they're grinding on the one that they think will make the people stay one minute longer to give them that little edge because the demands of commerce, I think I read that MyPillow spent $60 million with Fox News in 2020. Now, if that guy, if that's where your competitive pressures are, you're not going to say, Let's get that old rascality hillbilly Chris Steyerwald in here. <laughs> and he's going to tell you something you're probably not going to like, but it may make you think yeah. that's, not, that's not good business. It's interesting because it seems like it's happened a little bit on the left, too, during the Trump era, as in subscriptions to places like The Times, like all the legacy media really soared during the Trump years. So, I mean, are those how has that shaped the incentives kind of moving forward past Trump? Like, is it kind of this outrage industry on the left, too? When The Washington Post... And what's happening on the left is, so I think what's happening to right-wing media is a demand side problem. I think what's happening is that the viewers, listeners, readers, consumers are intolerant of dissent. I think that is a problem that, that exists on the right. And because they've been, to quote James Carville, when you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. They got helped to that point, right? Through talk radio, Mm -hmm. through cable news. They were led down the primrose path. And now they're trying to, people will start to come out of it. On the left, you have like the experience of our friend Barry Weiss, who you had speak to us. us. Yes, that's right. And inside these newsrooms, the mob is inside the newsroom, right? And even editors at very liberal places like the New York Times say, this is madness. I can't run my own newsroom. People are getting fired for... And the Twitter hate mobs and all that stuff. So, and on one side... Although I think Phoebe's got a point. Their subscription base is very liberal. Oh, yeah. And, and they rebel if the time starts well, the giving interesting them something. Thing I bet also, you they've gotten blowback for Michael Powell's piece. We can guess that if you held a presidential election among the readers of the New York Times, the Democrats would get more than 80% of the vote, yeah, right. right? And their readership is very liberal. But here's what Democrats, here's what the left has been getting wrong. They're very online, very young, highly activist core is not reflective of the larger electorate or even of the larger Times audience, for example, which brings us to Joe Biden and the South Carolina primary, where black Democrats said, whoa, 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 what? Not just South Carolina primary, all across the South. and, And all across the South and all across the Midwest that and in Michigan, they came out and they came out all over the place and said, 
are you guys crazy? Yeah, yeah. We have to pick the former vice president. Just shut up. And that was the thing that never happened for Republicans in 2016. Now, of course, Democrats' experience in 2020 was shaped by 20. They wouldn't have been. You have to be willing to be willing. And the Democrats, after four years of Trump, were willing to be willing. Talking about President Biden and this business about character, not position, if you were the head of media or communications in the White House, would you be pretty happy with the way they've managed his image? Totally. I mean, you have to admit. Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe is still out there. He's out there. He's reassuring. Even the dog thing is The dog thing. (laughs) I loved the dog thing. Right, the dog thing. (laughs) Poor dog died. I'm sorry. (laughs) But he's getting points. You know, you get get a couple couple points (laughs) when when the dog- They issued a two-paragraph release. Yeah. Champ. Joe Biden right now looks a lot like George W. Bush did in the summer of 2001. It's kind of popular. It's an inch deep and a mile wide. If you had to choose, would you rather have Barack Obama's numbers at this point in his first term or Biden's numbers? I might want Biden's because they seem pretty steady. It's 53, it's 49, 50. He seems to have found the space where he is. And once you find the space, he's one, basically, he's two orders of magnitude above where Trump was. He's one over where Obama's comfort zone is. And if Joe Biden can be a 51% president, he'll be reelected. And you're not going to beat a guy with the over 50% job approval. Now, I should also say there's a timing thing going on. They started far left, overreached, but it was, it was always going to be temporary. Well, as long as it's free money, yeah, yeah. no one cares, yeah. right? Yeah. Everybody loves free money. As Republicans demonstrated under the Trump administration, the fiscal conservatism, the much vaunted fiscal conservatism that led us to shut down after fiscal cliff, after the brutal ordeal of the Obama administration, where I had to spend night after night sitting in my office or going over to the Capitol and looking at something that made no difference to anything. But it became this high stakes brinksmanship. And we remember the Ted Cruz shutdown of 2013. It's all meaningless because as soon as they got unified control in Washington, they spent, they ran a trillion dollars. The lasting shame, one of the lasting shames for the Republican Party is that with unified control of Washington and with an economy growing at a 4% annualized GDP rate, they still borrowed a trillion dollars. They still spent a trillion dollars they didn't have. So that means the, the functional end for a, a good long while about a fiscal probity is an issue. A lot of voters are concerned about it. That broad consensus is still very concerned about debt and deficit, and it's, ha- it's being expressed in some of the anxieties that people are sharing about inflation. That's a proxy for that same concern, like this is just too much. So we may be at the point where it's just too much, but the stuff that Biden did that was far left was just spend money, and everybody likes free money. Where it will get hard for Biden is, and we're seeing it now, if he can't land another... And he, look, he's going to get some other big spending thing. He's going to get an infrastructure bill. He's going to get today. Our listeners will hear this a week from now. But today, Senator Portman came out over the weekend and said, you know, the president won't go along with the gas tax and we, but we may still be able to find a way to get it done. Mm -hmm. And And they've got uh, another reconciliation to use. I just feel like they're they're going to get an infrastructure. They're going to do it. So, so they'll push through some more stuff, but eventually it gets down to the point and you can see this with back to HR1. Those are the issues that sink presidents. 
I mean, if the economy is good, those are the issues that can still sink presidents. If the Democratic left, if the base, they've been letting Donald Trump is Joe Biden's greatest asset every day. The more that Trump is out, the more that Trump is around, the more Trump is whatever. That's how you keep the Democratic base in Congress from radicalizing on you. Because well, Phoebe, threat- that's a big point Chris just made, because not all of our listeners are going to like that. But Donald Trump is their best argument. Is that what you just said? Absolutely. The, the best thing going for Joe Biden is the real and present. So unlike normal presidents who go away, right, like the moment Barack Obama left office, there wasn't a, again, what's, what's Obama up to today? Very little. Yeah, Very little. Right, right. With Trump, it's omnipresent. And this is in mm-hmm. part because the media, left and right, made a decision to, we're eventually going to answer Phoebe's question in the longest yeah. oh, discussion sorry, possible. Sorry. But to think about it this way, if you're the Washington Post and you say democracy dies in darkness or you're CNN and you run Trump sucks coverage 24 hours a day, if you do that, Donald Trump was right. You're going to miss me, right? Yeah. You're going to miss me. What are you going to talk about yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. You're going to talk about the dog died? No. You're going to want to talk about Trump. And Trump helps Biden because he keeps the Republicans needlessly divided and he continues to raise the specter of the alternative, right? And Biden wants to be judged in comparison to Trump, not in comparison to yeah. the dreams of Ayanna Presley. All right. Well, boy, there's a lot there. Media, no. politics. Phoebe, got another one? I mean, why can't Republicans see that, I guess, is my biggest question. Like, what would it take for them to break with Trump at this point? I think a good way to think about the Republican Party is there's always going to be, if you look back at polls, there's about 20 percent of the electorate that is with Trump no matter matter what. what. And I first identified them when there was a group of 20 percent. And when I was at Fox and we did a poll, one of the questions was about Trump's conflict with the Khan family, the Gold Star family, mm-hmm. and who Trump was in a vicious public dispute with this Gold Star family. And there were 20% of Republicans who said, more, do it more. Everybody else is either, stop doing it, it's wrong, or I don't, uh, uh, no, mm-hmm. no. There were 20% that were like, I like it. Those are the same folks who voted for Pitchfork, Pat Buchanan, not the same personally, but this yeah. from a demographic and ideological footprint, there's a big chunk of the Republican Party that is a little nativist, that is pretty angry and definitely certain that people in places like this one are out to get them, right? Populism is grievance. And if Donald Trump, if he would have had a different issue set other than immigration, immigration and isolationism were the two crucial things. But if he would have had a totally different issue set, the point of Donald Trump was the fact that he upset people, mm-hmm. right? They like that. So you'll never convince those people. Then you have the other people, and I don't even know what to say about like the Lincoln Project shenanigans, whatever that, whatever, whatever that misadventure is. Mm-hmm. There are people who have allowed themselves to be definitionally changed by Trump, that their politics to oppose Trump have changed everything about them, right? And they're You're talking about Bill Crystal. Yeah. And you see people where you're like, I thought you were conservative. And Max Boot and others who have come out to repudiate their conservatism and they no longer are and all that stuff. That's a very small number of people. Most of the Republicans agree with you, but they can't say it, right? So if we were to give Lindsey Graham truth serum, he would say, I wish Donald Trump would go away, but I know he, he's not going to go away. So we're just going to have to placate him 
placate the alligator and hope he eats us last. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are going to try to do it. Only when, and this is why what Trump did to try to steal the election was so pernicious, only when Republicans get beaten in a way that they say, we got beat, will they say, okay, and now moving on. I just, I always use this example. In 2004, when John Kerry, we go all the way back to John Forbes Kerry, John Kerry, uh, he, when he lost, Democrats said, and you can go back and look at the New York Times for the week after the election, immediate consensus. What should Democrats do? They should nominate a moderate. They should nominate somebody maybe from a red state to reach out to NASCAR dads. This is what they should do because they lost on God, guns, and gays. And this is the verdict of all this stuff. No one said, hey, how about a freshman senator from Illinois, the most liberal voting record in Congress, and whose middle name is Hussein? No one said in 2004 that that was the way out for Democrats. This stuff is total adhocracy. Partisans make up the rationale for why what they did to win worked. worked. Mm -hmm. And they do it every time. And it's totally understandable. And I'm cool with it. I just don't have to waste a lot of time on the, the navel gazing of partisans because the purpose of a political party is to win elections. And it's not to have an idea or carry an ideology forward. That's why we have think tanks. So, but that last point about the emergence of Barack Obama indicates that they're a candidate who we don't have, haven't seen yet could emerge right. and could capture the imagination of the Republican electorate. And we have all of these people who are trying way too hard to answer your question, right? Yeah. And I mentioned Hawley, who is like over the top. He's, mm -hmm. He is the absurdo. But Rubio, Cruz, Cotton, a number, Nikki Haley, Sanders. she's been on three sides of it now, but they are trying to find a place to honor those positions that Trump made inroads on and appeal to that part of the Republican electorate, but bring in the traditional Republicans too. Yeah. To, to rebuild that coalition. What usually happens, though, people start running for president and somebody's good at it mm -hmm. and they get better as they go. Don't pay attention to who like Kamala Harris, Jeb Bush, Elizabeth Warren, Marco Rubio. The list is long of people mm -hmm. who on paper you were like, this person is great. You watched the day, the best day that Kamala Harris had in her campaign was the day she announced. I know. And every subsequent well, like while you're on that topic, the advantages that President Biden has have accrued to him are not transferable to the vice president. If President Biden does not run, right. then it's uncertain. And it will, of course, reelects are always easy, easier. You see what it took to unseat an incumbent with Donald Trump, and it was a lot. It was a lot. Americans don't like to unseat sitting presidents. It's just we don't like to do it. We don't like unnecessary change. We just, if we, can, if we can find a way to excuse getting by, we will. And we like to give a person a chance to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. noticed in city and state politics, if you won the first time, they'd give you a second time. Yeah, you get might a, not give you a third time, but yeah. they give you two. And as long as, right, as long as you, and I think Obama was a great example of this. That was Biden's line for the 2012 election. Don't judge me by the almighty, judge me by the alternative. And if you take this other guy in here, you're going to have to go through all this other stuff and you're mm -hmm. going to have to do all this change and it'll be a big waste of time and da, 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 da. So retention elections work a little differently, but this one is going to be, Biden is older than Methuselah and has a shaky democratic coalition. And if the economy is not good, 
He's got real problems whether he runs or doesn't run. And Harris is just not a great talent, right? She is not and, and will never be. And I think one of the things that people misunderstood about Harris is she's a machine politician. And I got nothing against machine politicians. Harry Truman was a machine politician. There's lots of, lots of people who are good leaders who come out of machine politics. Fine, fine, fine. The problem Harris has is that they, people thought, oh, she's a transformational leader. She's this going to be this charismatic thing. And that's not who she is. Okay. So last question, just to finish up, Chris, to get to know you better. You come from West Virginia. And mm-hmm. a lot of times I get asked by people who I meet with, about Senator Manchin and, mm-hmm. and explain to me your knowledge of him and how you think he will play his very pivotal role in the next couple of years. Well, first, I should say that we are recording this on the observed West Virginia Day. I think West Virginia is the only state in the union that has a state holiday for its birth because we were the only state born of the Civil War. It was a pretty big deal. The 35th star. But now Just to be clear about this, did West Virginia break away from Virginia in order to be part of the union? Yes. In 1861, when Virginia seceded, the 50 western counties that are now 55 counties went back and had another convention of their own and seceded from Virginia. And then... Well, it's a source of pride for West Virginia. A huge source of pride. But then there was the scam element of it. Like any good hillbillies, we had a little bit... We were working an angle. And the scam was that the government in my hometown of Wheeling, West Virginia, declared itself the restored government of Virginia so that for purposes of interacting with the federal government, we said, well, we're the capital and we are now the government of all of Virginia. But Lincoln was was way to suck down federal funds. Way, well, and a way to suck down federal funds and then use that to petition the government because a state can't be divided by the federal government. So when Virginia, the reformed government of Virginia, podcast air quotes, the reformed government of Virginia was petitioning the federal government to divide it, not the other way around. Lincoln didn't have to do it, but he came through for us at the end. And on the center of the West Virginia flag, it says June 20th, 1863, right in front of a liberty cap to denote their opposition to slavery. So we're pretty cool. Joe Manchin is, I'm enjoying watching Kristen Cinema from Arizona try to get into the limelight out there <laughs> with Mojo a little bit. Yeah, she yeah. says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm also very iconoclastic. I'm also <laughs> a big rebel. Yeah. Don't let it all be with this guy. Joe Manchin is, yes, in part speaking for his constituency in West Virginia. And Joe Manchin, yes, always keeps his political options open. And yes, Joe Manchin is not going to, he is milking this for the benefits that he will experience in West Virginia. And guy who could win in West Virginia in 2018, a Democrat who can win in West Virginia in 2018, pretty good, right? That's, that's, that's pretty good as the state was getting Trumpier and Trumpier and Trumpier. So part of it is that. But Manchin has another constituency too. And I've talked to him. These are other Democrats in the Senate who don't want to have to do all of these things, but they have states where they have to worry about the radicals in their primaries, right? So I am sure, and these are, they haven't told me, but to list some people, think about John Hickenlooper in Colorado. Think about Mark Kelly, who has to run again in Arizona. Senator in New Hampshire. Yep. Gene Shaheen, Coons from Delaware. So you have all of these normal kinds of Democrats who don't want to have to say to their base, gosh, guys, the For the People Act is a radical departure that will make people very angry and will be bad policy. We, we should not do that. They don't want to say that. They can't say that. Right. But Manchin can. So what Manchin is doing is being a sin eater for a lot of those guys. And, sin eater? Yep. Is that the, a term? Do I know that term? What is that? I, you know about the sin eater? No. 
So in the story Finian's Wake, the Sin Eater is there, but it is the Celtic tradition about a spread of food is laid out on top of the casket and a person comes and symbolically consumes the sin of that person so that they will go on. They will go on to the afterlife with the fairies (laughs) around them. And there with the I'm sorry. I, I, I yeah. think myself as fairly literary. I'm not know that. Expecting one. a lot out of you. <laughs> well, uh, you got to just you got to you got to step up your Irish. I really do. Portion. Yeah. You know, more of that. So you have a little Irish West Virginia Fox News. Oh, it's all there. Well, it, I, I don't know, all I, the boxes. I, I, yeah. I, I don't, it's, it's a weird. It's a weird form. If those are your boxes. <laughs> so Mansion. So you're saying that Mansion is genuinely a moderate, looking out for his own electoral base, but also protecting the Democrats. In a funny way. I have made a vow to take people in politics at their word unless proven otherwise, mm-hmm. right? And there's a big effort right now with Joe Manchin, first from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the real hardliners, but now it's spreading that Manchin is somehow on the take or that there's something corrupt about what he's doing. And they said leaked audio from him speaking to his wealthy donors. And I was like, what wealthy donors? It's from no labels, yeah, yeah, right? Which is the nonpartisan whatever. The fact is, Joe Manchin has been in politics since 1988, I think. Joe Manchin is good at it. To tell you how good Joe Manchin's political lineage is, his uncle, A. James, was the Secretary of State of West Virginia for a long time. And Arch Moore, father of Shelley Moore Capito and then governor, was talking to him about a race where he was running, where he was going to split the Democratic vote. And Arch was very pleased with what Manchin's uncle was doing inside the Democratic primary. And he called him up and he said, AJ, how's the campaign going? And he said, well, Governor, we're running this campaign on BS and bumper stickers, and we're almost out of bumper stickers. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the last, just so I'm clear on this, there I've heard from some people around the minority of the Senate, the Republicans, is that they worry that he at some point will betray them. Well, the point of the Senate is Joe Manchin, right? The point of the Senate is the world's most deliberative body that you can have power in that institution if you are good at this, right? And Manchin's good at it. And now, he had a unique situation, but he's good at it. So, The people who will say that Joe Manchin betrayed, everybody will say Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. betrayed them. What Joe Manchin's going to try to do, and I'm encouraged by it, if we lose the filibuster right now, this is not a time for the Senate to get worse, right? We need the Senate. We need Congress to be Congress. I'm going to get a Yuval Levin tattoo on my shoulder about we have to save this institution. We have to be serious about saving Congress. And whatever Joe Manchin's doing, He is making Congress more powerful, and he is trying to restore the Senate to some of its glory. And that's a good thing. So I'm whatever you think about what he's going to do later on, whatever issue, I'm sure he will upset everyone in before it's all done. But for now, I'm going to take him at face value that he wants to do a good thing for the Congress. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much, Chris, for being with us. You're a joy to have at AI. And thanks for being on our podcast. Well, it is my happy home, and I'm glad to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to Banter. We, like Congress, are taking a brief August recess, but we'll be back in September wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.